Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hello, Las Vegas. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Hope you all are doing well. We have church tonight at 7 o'clock. If you would like to join us, we'd love to have you. You can find us at 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard here in the city. This is KVXL LP 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio coming to you live from Studio B at Liberty Baptist Church. Our thanks to those of you listening over at the 405media.com. It was great to have you with us. If you would like to be part of the program, you can email us, radio at experienceliberty.com, or call us at 702-647-4522. It's 702-647-4522. And, of course, I am still on Twitter. So you can still go and follow me there. Or talk to me there. Well, it's not really talking. It's more like typing to me. And then I type back. It's more like texting than actually talking. Except it's tweeting. But hey, you can tweet me. At the Frittle on Twitter. Alright, so last night... Well, not last night, really. It was all of yesterday. We had primaries on the Democratic side. uh, Both um, Oregon and Kentucky... We're up for grabs, and on the Democratic side, Kentucky is essentially too close to call. Less than 2,000 votes separating Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in that race. So they have essentially split the delegates, and no one has been declared the winner yet. It looks as though Mrs. Clinton may edge out, uh, just eke out a victory there, but for delegate purposes, they split them. They each got 27. Then over in Oregon... Bernie Sanders wins again. The man is just on a roll. However, in terms of delegates, he only actually picked up four more than Hillary. So he got 28, Hillary got 24. That leaves him, he's now within 300 pledged delegates of catching Hillary. Now, when it comes to super delegates, though, Hillary has more than 400. So it's a grand total of, uh, she's like 700 some ahead of him when you factor in the super delegates. The question is... Will there be great upheaval in Philadelphia at the Democratic Convention? Are Bernie Sanders supporters going to riot or worse? I mean, because it's very possible at the rate that we're going that Sanders gets very close to, if not surpasses, Hillary in pledged delegates. He's never going to catch her in superdelegates, but in pledged delegates, that becomes a very real possibility. Because, I mean, you've still got, what else do we have? We have, uh, on the Democratic side, they've still got California, which is 475 delegates up for grabs there on the Democratic side. North Dakota, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and Washington, D.C. All yet to vote on the Democratic side before the convention. Things just keep getting more interesting over there. On the Republican side, uh, we had... 
uh, I believe it was just Oregon yesterday that voted on the Republican side. And Mr. Trump, of course, was the victor there. He got almost 67% of the vote. Ted Cruz and John Kasich both got, well, Cruz got basically 17% and Kasich got 16%. That's a pretty big chunk of people still uh, not willing to throw their vote to to Mr. Trump yet. 110,000 people. 212,000 voted for Mr. Trump. 110,000 voted for either Cruz or Kasich. Interesting to see how that translates come November with Republican voters. So another big uh, headline from yesterday, the Senate unanimously approved a bill allowing victims, families uh, from 9-11 to sue Saudi Arabia. This is from The Hill. The Senate on Tuesday approved legislation that would allow victims of the 9-11 terror attacks to sue Saudi Arabia, defying vocal opposition from the White House. The upper chamber approved the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act by unanimous consent. This bill is very near and dear to my heart as a New Yorker because it would allow the victims of 9-11 to pursue some small measure of justice, Senator Charles Schumer said. This is another example of the John Cornyn-Schumer collaboration, which works pretty well around here. President Obama has threatened to veto the bill. Schumer said, however, he wouldn't uphold a veto and expects that most other senators wouldn't either. I think we easily get the two-thirds override if the president should veto, Schumer said. Senator John Cornyn said he and Schumer are talking with leadership in both parties to get an expedited vote on the bill in the House. White House Press Secretary John Ernst, or, I'm sorry, Josh Ernst reiterated Obama's opposition to the bill on Tuesday. Given the concerns we have expressed, it's difficult to imagine the president signing this legislation. The bill would allow victims of terror attacks on U.S. soil or their surviving family members to bring lawsuits against nation states for activities supporting terrorism. Despite bipartisan support for the legislation, it hit a snag last month when Senator Lindsey Graham said he was blocking the legislation over concerns it would open up the U.S. to lawsuits from foreigners accusing Washington of supporting terrorism. But Graham's office said he dropped his hold over the recent recess. Cornyn thanked Graham and other GOP senators for their willingness to work with us to deal with their concerns. The legislation will now head to the, head to the House, where lawmakers have also introduced their own version of the bill. Speaker Paul Ryan has voiced skepticism about the legislation. I think we need to look at it, Ryan told reporters last month. I think we need to review it to make sure we are not making mistakes with our allies and we're not catching people in this that shouldn't be caught up in this. The comments created a rare area of agreement between GOP lawmakers and the White House, which struggled to convince Democrats that the legislation could undermine national security. So there you have two very legitimate real concerns from two Republican lawmakers that perhaps aren't the most popular people in America right now. But if you look at what they're actually saying are their concerns, it's very legitimate. You have Senator Lindsey Graham saying that this could open up the United States to international lawsuits of countries accusing the U.S. of terrorism. So essentially every Middle Eastern action that we take in support of Israel could be viewed as an act of U.S. terrorism. Now, we wouldn't see it that way. But what is terrorism when you're dealing with terrorist countries? Think about that. That's a very interesting thought. I'm kind of surprised he let that one go so easily. 
And then you have people that are going to be like, well, why on earth wouldn't Paul Ryan support this? He's just a Trump-hating politician who doesn't understand what the people want. Okay, so hold on to your horses there, partner. Here's what's going on, all right? So at first read, overall, it sounds like a good idea, right? Let let families and victims of terrorist attacks sue these countries. Graham had some interesting other perspective. I think Paul Ryan has an interesting other perspective. Because you have to look at more than just, oh, this is a good idea. You have to look at the implications of the idea, the effects, the consequences of the actions here. So, and in what court are these nations going to be tried? In an international court? In a U.S. court? I mean, not everyone in the world thinks the way that we do. And there's a bigger problem, though. And it goes something like this, which is what I think Speaker Ryan is alluding to. Though Stalin was evil, the U.S. partnered with the lesser evil to overthrow the greater evil, which was Adolf Hitler. Currently, we have a similar arrangement with Saudi Arabia. We're letting Saudi Arabia deal with issues in the Middle East like ISIS so that we can play a lesser role in those situations. Now, we can argue about whether we think that's a good position for the U.S. to take. But this also, by the way, this is why we haven't seen those 28 pages of the 9-11 report because of its potential um, bad news for the Saudis. But whether or not you approve of the overall methodology... This is what we've been given to work with right now. We're letting Saudi Arabia deal with problems that we don't want to deal with. So Paul Ryan is saying, hey, I get what you guys are doing, but we need to make sure that we don't antagonize our allies in the process. You say, well, Saudi Arabia shouldn't even be our ally. Well, granted, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But at the moment, that's who we're letting do work for us. And it's easy to just throw cold water at politicians. And say, they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't understand, they don't want what the people want. It's hard to take a step back and realize that they may have actually thought through what they're doing. And shockingly enough, they might even legitimately love our country. Bear with me now. It's easy to stand on the outside and criticize and point fingers at DC and say, replace them all, they're all corrupt, they all need to go. But that's just not the case, you guys. There are some incredible people serving our country right now in Washington, D.C., and this mood of total and complete overhaul, of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, it will come back to bite us. Now, yes, there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who care only about themselves, money, and power. They're not there to serve. There are lots of people like that. But not all of them. Not everyone is that way. And you can say, well, you're just naive. You don't understand that all politicians are are beholden to special interests. Well, are they? And it could be. But do do we even really know what special interests are? Personally, I don't think that all, quote, special interests, unquote, are bad. Because if farmers didn't lobby... Washington, D.C., who would speak for the farmers in Washington, D.C.? Who would help the politicians who aren't farmers understand farming and the implications of the legislation they are passing on farmers? I mean, if homeschoolers and private schools didn't lobby, who would speak for them? Who would help politicians who don't homeschool or utilize private schools understand the issues facing those educators? 
I mean, you do realize that those people would be classified as special interest groups. And that's the problem with generalizations. There's always exceptions. Sure, there are lobbyists that are corrupt and that are, that are, that are working uh, behind the scenes and doing things that we wouldn't approve of. But there are also lobbyists and special interests, quote-unquote, that, believe me, you want lobbying in Washington, D.C. There are always exceptions to the wide-sweeping generalizations that we make, and to say that everyone in Washington, D.C. is bad, or all of our government officials are evil, is just inaccurate. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we don't really know, because most of us have never been selected to represent an entire state, what that's like. Because guess what? Not every person in the state of Nevada thinks the same way, or whatever state you're in. Not every person in the state of Utah thinks the same way. Not every person in the state of Kentucky thinks the same exact way. So I might want Senator Reid to vote one way, because he's supposed to represent me. But guess what? For every phone call that I as a Nevadan make to my senator, there's another Nevadan whose view on the subject is polar opposite of mine, and they expect Senator Reid to represent them as well. So how, how do you deal with that? You say, well, you do the right thing. Okay. Well, what, what is truth? That's, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? When it comes down to it, what is truth? What is the right thing? Now you say, well, what I say is the right thing because boom, boom, boom. That's great. Guess what? The other person that's calling in is saying, what I say is the right thing because boom, boom, boom. Now we, obviously conservative Christians, we're basing what we believe is truth on principles of the Bible. So we have that ultimate truth. But when you're dealing with a secular society, and particularly secular politicians who don't have that foundation, the truth kind of becomes more subjective, doesn't it? I mean, the truth doesn't change. But to them... What is truth? How do they serve all of their constituents? What I'm trying to say is they may not be doing as badly as you think because perhaps what they're trying to do is serve their constituency. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. And you know what else? They're leaving their homes and their families to go to the other side of the world to work for you on your behalf and then they come back and for half of their term they have to hope to raise enough money to get elected again to serve you because you can't just be elected on character and principle anymore no now you have to build an entire war chest to give you the privilege of attempting to continue representing the people of your state or city or whatever else and meanwhile they sit on committees some or many of which they know absolutely nothing about and so they ask their agriculture lobbyist to meet with them to teach them about the pros and cons of, say, wind farms. And then it gets blasted all over your local paper that your politician has abandoned their promise to you, the people, because oh, horrors, they just met with an environmental lobbyist. D do you see the problem here? I mean, why is it that with almost every other group of people, we give them the benefit of the doubt? But when it comes to our elected officials, surely they are evil and they want to destroy me, my family, and my country forever. Well, you know, maybe maybe look past the headline. It could be that they're abandoning their promise and they met with this lobbyist that you don't like. 
Or maybe they let, met with the lobbyists because they're legitimately trying to understand more about this industry that's affecting this bill or this bill or this bill or that bill that they have to deal with and make an educated vote on and they don't know what they should do. Here's another thought. Did you ever stop to think long enough that perhaps it's possible that even Barack Obama is doing what he believes is best for America? I'm not saying, bear with me, I'm not saying that what he's done or is doing is best for America. I want to clarify that. I'm saying that he believes that what he is doing is best for America. I think he does. I don't subscribe to the theory that Barack Obama hates our country. Does he have a fundamentally different worldview than I do? Yes. Do I further believe that it, that worldview is fundamentally different than the worldview upon which our country was founded? Definitely. Is he trying to fundamentally change America? I would say yes again. But I don't believe that he's doing that because he wants Americans to be miserable. I believe that he does the things that he does because he believes they are in our best interests as a country. I may, not dis- I may not agree with him. I may think he's completely wrong. But I also think that he is doing what he thinks is best for our nation. The point being this. You may disagree with your elected officials. But remember that they are only human, like you. They make mistakes like you but they also love America like you and it's very possible that they legitimately desire to serve you and serve our country and that the things that they're doing in Washington DC they're doing because they believe it is in your best interest as a citizen and in our country's best interest as a whole even if you disagree with them it doesn't mean that everything they do is done with a malicious intent in mind. In fact, it could be quite the opposite. So maybe rather than just rail on our elected officials, we would be better served next time we call their office to thank them for serving us. Even if we disagree with their positions, to thank them for serving. To thank their staffers for serving. And to pray for them. God calls us to pray for our elected officials, but do we? I wonder how different our nation would be if we prayed for our elected officials as much as we complained about them. It's food for thought. Memorial Day is coming up, the 29th. So not this Sunday, but the Sunday after that. Well, actually, it's the Monday. Memorial Day is on the 30th, but we are celebrating Memorial Day um, on the 29th here at Liberty Baptist Church with a remembrance ceremony, we're going to be honoring a Gold Star family and remembering their son, Daniel Hyde. The Hyde family will be here with us and we'll be recognizing them. You can read about their story in the book, 24 Years and 40 Days. This is a fantastic family and I, we would love to have you come out to join us to help honor the Hydes on Memorial Sunday. Um, you know, it's, just, it's so important to remember the sacrifices that our military families make. And this is one way that we uh, honor our military families every year. Remember our fallen heroes. And we would love to have you join us for that. 
Today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round. They can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious, community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use, and you can visit KrispyKreme.com slash fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. Coming up next, we're going to have a friend of mine, John Kim. He's with U.S. Kids Golf. We're going to talk about golf and life lessons that you can learn from golf. The president would probably enjoy this next segment immensely, and you will too, because golf isn't just a sport for rich people, believe it or not. <laughs> and John is a great guy, so you're going to enjoy this. We're going to play Mighty to Save from Hillsong. This is acoustic, and then we'll be back. Do not go away. You are listening to KVXL LP 101.1 FM. And welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM here in Las Vegas. Our good friend John Kim is on the line. John, I, you know what? I didn't think to ask you how you would like to be introduced. Would you? I mean, let's see. Um, super golfing Batman. I don't. I don't even yeah, know. That's, that's not even true. But other than that, I play a lot. That doesn't mean I play well. But uh, I do play a lot. But it's great to be here. Yeah, I. Uh, I'm now a the director of communications uh, and media for a great organization called U.S. Kids Golf. I'm sure a lot of people there in Las Vegas are. Uh, very familiar with it. We've got a very strong local tour program there. I think uh, uh, it's got eight tournaments, r- averages around eight kids per tournament uh, going on there. There's sign-ups available now at uskidsgolf.com. So uh, it's great to uh, talk to the great folks out in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. We are we are great folks. We are very great folks. And today apparently is National Golf Day. I didn't even know that until like 30 seconds ago when we were talking. And apparently <laughs> there's a big to-do in D.C. today. And our, uh, our, our very wise officials are discussing how golf is more than a game. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, so uh, this all came about. Uh, it actually came about after Hurricane Katrina, and uh, we all know the devastating impact that Hurricane Katrina took uh, there on the Gulf Coast. Um, when the federal government started subsidizing some of the business recoveries, at the time, golf was left out, and uh, golf was put into a category with uh, things like, uh, uh, quite honestly, like massage parlors and, and, <laughs> and the such, uh, and they... The political officials had no idea the economic impact that golf has uh, in this country. And if you don't mind, I'll just share just a couple of quick numbers. Yeah, go for golf it. Is a, golf is a $70 billion industry. Now, you think about how many jobs. One out of every 75 jobs in the U.S. is impacted by the world of golf. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you include direct, indirect, and kind of what they call induced impacts, we're no longer talking $70 billion. We're talking $177 billion. Wow. Uh, Two million U.S. jobs, uh, that's $55.6 billion alone there. So uh, when you're talking golf, you're not just talking about the guy that goes out on Saturday mornings to his local club and, and, and pays a you know, $60 green fee. Uh, you know, you're talking about people who work there, both in the pro shop, uh, in the grill room, uh, the people who sell the equipment to the shops to, to sell, people who make the shoes, the people have to wear. Uh, it is, uh, it's more than just 
recreation at this point. Now we're talking about a major driving force, not to mention it's the largest single charitable uh, fundraising platform there is hmm. uh, in, the, in the world. Wow. See, I didn't know any of those things. And to be honest, I think that could partially be because I feel like our current president has kind of given golf a bad name. That there is a, uh, you know, I will just say that regardless of, of who is playing, I mean, Crystal, I don't think you play enough golf, and, and I'm going to have to do something about that. You are, um, because actually my one of my brothers plays golf. He actually plays golf in college, and uh, he taught himself to play golf. No one in my family played golf, right? Uh, my dad was a football guy. My other brothers played football. Jeremiah played football for, I think, maybe two seasons, and then one day... My uncle gave him a pair of old, or a pair, a set of old golf clubs, and uh, my parents had 19 acres. He sets up his own driving range down in my dad's field and just starts hitting golf balls. Then he started playing for our local high school, went to a bunch of different tournaments. I won't brag on him too much. Now he's playing golf in college. I was like, okay, teach me how to play golf. He took me one time. That is phenomenal. He let me hit three balls, and then he said, you know what? I can't teach you. You're not good at this game. I was like, what do you mean you can't teach me? I'm not good at this game. I will say this. My wife, God bless her, uh, she is patient with me and allows me to get out to uh, to the club and play quite a bit. Um, but now she has a membership at this club. She's got nice golf clubs. She's got all the clothes. She's got a number of golf professionals around the country that are willing to give her lessons. Nice. Uh, and she won't get out there either. So one of my great challenges for the rest of my life is going to be turning her into a uh, into a golfer. Well, next time you're in um, Vegas, you can attempt to teach me. That would be fine. I will, I will make a special trip just to do that. <laughs> I, it would be I'd be honored to. Okay, um, but so yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say so. You know, the whole idea of golf uh, as a sport and as a uh, economic impact uh, that is so 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 huge. But the reason um, that I'm with U.S. Kids Golf. Uh, because I've always been, as you know, in the golf industry uh, to some extent. But this organization, and I think this is kind of what your audience might want to hear, uh, when we say that it's more than a game, which is kind of the, uh, the phrase uh, associated with National Golf Day, National Golf Day talks about it uh, by its econo- economic impact. Uh, as a rule, as a mission for U.S. Kids Golf, uh, we say that it's more than a game, but it has to do more with families. Mm. Uh, and that it is probably the most pure and uh, genuine uh, family platform in the world of sports, where fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and mothers and sons, grandparents and their grandkids, uh, really get a time. We're talking about four to five uninterrupted hours of being together, of enjoying the challenge of teaching, of learning, of etiquette, of sportsmanship, of uh, competition, a blast. Uh, there is uh, nothing that I've ever seen that brought families uh, into world sports. Uh, I mean, it's it's very much, in a sense, like a, a church program in my eyes. Sure. Uh, that that the excitement that these kids have because they're about to go to the golf course and spend time uh, with their dad, uh, with their mom, whoever, or a family outing, and I see it every week. Uh, you know, it's literally the, the whole mission of U.S. Kids Golf is if we can make every family play golf together like that, wouldn't this world be a better place? Sure, yeah. And honestly, I don't think that 
golf is something that most people think about as being a, a sports option for their kids. Like it's, it, I think it's growing in popularity, but I think most people that's not what they they look at. You know, they think soccer, they think basketball, they think football. Most people don't think, oh, my kid can play golf. But like you said, there's so much that's that is character development that's happening on the golf course that I think people don't think about. You know, you've got the honesty and respect side of it where it's all on the honor system. Um, you got to play it where it lies. You can't dwell on that bad shot. You have to learn to be consistent, know where you're going, where you want to go, all these different things, right? The, the life lesson that you get from one round of golf is, uh, I mean, I don't know if you can teach it in a semester. And uh, a very famous sports writer, Grant LaRice, uh, once noted that you could learn more about a person in one round of golf than you could in a lifetime of working with them in an office. Mm. And that's everything from how they handle adversity to how they support others. Uh, are, they, are they, as you mentioned, are they honest? What's their integrity? Are they classy? Um, you know, how do they handle success? How do they handle failure? Uh, there is, uh, it, is, it is a microcosm of life. Uh, and that's part of the great appeal of golf, uh, and that's why I've been so drawn to it over the last 15 years uh, in working in it, is uh, that it certainly is a, a, a real, re- it does reveal character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does reveal the kind of, not only person that you are, but it kind of reveals the, the outlook you have on life. And, and, you know, as you well know, probably better than most, uh, I think everybody... Uh, at times, particularly maybe nowadays, uh, could use a little bit more of a upbeat uh, perspective because uh, there's enough sure. out there to bring us all down. We certainly all know that. Yeah, definitely. So how you're with U.S. Kids Golf. If parents – oh, and by the way, I'll just throw this out there. Golf seems to be a relatively safe sport for your kids to play. I mean, you might get hit by a flying golf ball, but probably not if you're paying attention at all. Um, but other <laughs> than that – many years. Yeah, I might uh, – Yeah, it, Concussions, uh, I don't think those happen too much in golf. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of uh, uh, high fastballs to the head like uh, that you might encounter in Little League. There's no tackling, uh, at least in, at most country clubs. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, you know, golf is uh, uh, safe. You know, and it's, it's, it's safe and it's fun. You get to dress up a little bit uh, if, you, if you wish. Um, you know, so there's there's the fashion aspect to it. It's a lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's more than just uh, you at the uh, course. People people decorate their houses. They put putting greens in their backyard. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really quite a sight to behold. It is. It is. Uh, my eyes have been open to the world of golf since my brother started playing. It is a. It is definitely a lifestyle. Um, so say there's parents out there that are like, oh, I never thought about golf and having my kid play golf. I know there's a lot of schools, probably most schools, I would imagine, that have a golf program, but I don't know if it's just something that parents don't think about because they're not as into it. But how can, if parents want to get their kids involved in golf or think, hey, that's something I never thought about before, is U.S. Kids Golf a good way to go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm wearing my company hat when I say that, but uh, certainly uh, U.S. Kids Golf has been the industry leader for a long time. Um, because we, we do it in a very holistic fashion. So one of the things that you can do if you're interested in getting your kid involved in golf is, one, you want to get them the proper equipment. And uh, U.S. Kids Golf offers three different lines and nine different sizes uh, in those lines. And so that is very important. Most 
uh, golf clubs just simply don't fit kids very well. They're too long. They're too heavy. So what you want to do is make sure that the game is fun for them. So, you, you know, that they can swing a club in a proper way uh, for kids and their growing bodies. Uh, you need to have a golf club that is the proper length and is proper what we call lie angle that allows them at their, uh, at their body proportions uh, to hit the ball in a much easier, uh, straighter fashion. Hmm. Uh, secondly, you want to get them with the right instructor. As you well know uh, in dealing with your brother, uh, that's really important because yeah. certain instructors, just they don't have the eye, they don't have the knowledge in the background uh, to teach kids in the right way that makes it fun and enjoyable. So we have uh, 1,300 certified coaches uh, around the country. Uh, and uh, certainly I'm sure we have uh, several in Las Vegas. You can go to our website and find uh, under the Find a Coach Locator uh, one near you. Uh, and then, and then, thirdly, uh, you want to make the game something that they can aspire to. Mm. Uh, you know, just hitting balls after a little while isn't uh, isn't uh, that you 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 got to see if you're progressing. Sure. You got to get out on the golf course. So find the golf course that has what we call the uh, personal tees. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something we've done with the PGA of America. Uh, and then we also have tournaments, like I mentioned earlier, uh, that you can play in uh, for just 14 and under. Uh, playing the U.S. Kids Golf Tournaments, and that that uh, happens in cities all around the world. And then we have a world championship in July. That'll be at famous Pinehurst. Uh, we have 1,500 wow. kids from 50 different countries uh, come to that. It is amazing to me. I, I never watched golf until my brother started playing, and now I watch, and I watch these pros play golf. And it drives me crazy because I was sitting on the couch, and I'm thinking, why in the world am I watching golf right now? But it's actually really it kind funny, of fascinating. Actually. And, and I'll watch and I'll watch him miss a putt and I'll be like, oh, because I feel it as if it was my brother putting. I'm just like, oh, that's so terrible. But I got to watch a bunch of kids like my brother went to tournaments growing up when he's 14 and such. And and then you'd have the littler kids there. Some of these kids are amazing. Like, I can't make a putt to save my life. And they're like, yep, yeah, boom, done. No biggie. I'm it's, going, dude. It's disheartening for me because I see these and, and, I, and please don't take this in the way that I intended, but uh, if we take this in the way that I intended, <laughs> but um, I go to this world championship uh, last year up at Pinehurst, uh-huh. and you have these eight-year-old girls that are no taller than, you know, like my belt. Yes. And the way that they hit the ball, and the way that they chip, and the way that they putt, and I think, I have been working at this game for, you know, 30 years, and, <laughs> and my socks are older than that girl, and she could kicked my rear on the golf course, so, you know, six ways from Sunday, and I'm like, that is just wrong. That is not fair. That, <laughs> uh, I don't want to get I don't want to get mad at God about it, but I'm like, boy, that's just yeah. of all things. That's just mm. that that's just a stick in the eye. Sure. So uh, it, it is watching a kid uh, pick up a club and and enjoy it for the first time is is just so uh, powerful. But then also watching them progress and mm-hmm. succeed uh, is, is something that, you know, I, the best way I can put it is, is the most proud, if that's the right term, that I've seen parents over their kids almost anywhere. You know, honor roll is, is great. And if your kid does well in school, that's, that's awesome. Uh, but I've never seen parents more effusive about their kids than when I see that you know, playing and enjoying and doing well on a golf course. Yeah. Uh, it, that is because they know that's a lifetime. 
It is, and it invokes such a different emotional response. I really don't know how to explain it to people unless you've had like a relative involved in in variety of sports. But with most sports, you have a, a team function, a team event. So like my brother's playing football. I'm emotionally involved in the game, and I want his team to win, but unless he's actually being thrown the pass or defending the receiver, I'm not as involved. Whereas with golf, it's just you. Like, And if he makes that shot over the water, you're like, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, and that happens, you know, multiple, multiple times around. There is no, uh, there is no, there's only one last second field goal in football. Right. Um, right. With golf, it's there, every shot. You're like, okay, every okay, shot okay. Is, is hold yeah. your breath. That's right. It is, but you have to, I think you have to be involved in the sport to really understand that. And it is, it is a lot of fun though. So uh, one last question for you, what age is too young or too old to start uh, getting involved in golf. You know, I'm going to go with some of our uh, top coaches on this one and, and just pass what they say. And that is, is whenever the child is uh, ready, they'll almost let you know. Um, many, many, many people uh, purchase a golf club, you know, like my first putter type thing for kids sure. just when they're still in the crib. Uh, <laughs> taking them out to the range and letting them hit. You know, when they're old enough to stand and swing a club, you can have them out there. Uh, one of my uh, good friends is uh, the director of instruction at Cog Hill, mm-hmm. uh, just outside of Chicago, uh, and he's a very, very well-decorated uh, youth golf coach. Um, but he says, you know, when they when take them out there, and if they have fun, great. Uh, and if, they, if, no, if they're not having fun, bring them home. But even if they're having fun, make them leave before they're ready. In other words, don't keep them out there too long where they get tired of it. Make them want to come back. Sure. Uh, and, he, and he sees that happen with kids as young as three or four. Now, U.S. Kids Golf, our first set of clubs go, uh, and we do it by height rather than age, because obviously, as we know, eight-year-olds can be of various sure. heights. Yes. Uh, you probably but, have uh, some personal our, experience in your past with that. Yeah. I mean, I mean. Yeah. Our, <laughs> smallest, our smallest set is uh, for 39 inches, so that's a shade of three feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just, just whenever, uh, you know, kids love being outside, they love running and, and, and throwing, and they love hitting things. So just, and they love to emulate that. So uh, at our at our club, I see kids out there, three, four, five years old, and, and they're just having a blast. And they're not playing by any rules. They're not playing by any, um, uh, they don't have uh, any technical analysis, uh, you know, being instructed to them. They're just given a ball. A club and saying, "Hey, swing away! Just have fun. Hit it, hit it as many times as you want, as far as you want." And uh, there's a lot of laughter, and and you can see the love of the game just being instilled in them at that moment. When they get older, they'll let you know when they're ready for formalized instruction and tournaments and and uh, upgrading clubs, whatever that would be. Yeah, awesome. Well, John, I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Happy National Golf Day to you, and good luck out there on the greens. Always great to talk to you anytime. Thank All right. you so much. Chris. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, you're listening to KBXLLP 101.1 FM here in Las Vegas. We're going to wrap things up. Uh, no, we're just going to keep going with the segment here, and then we'll wrap things up in a few minutes. Well, we're I mean, we're wrapping things up now. I could just keep rambling, actually, which is what I'm going to do for the next three or four minutes, and then we'll play a song again and be on our way. This is from the AP. It's their big story. A startup wants to put self-driving big rigs on U.S. highways. I will repeat the headline. 
startup wants to put self-driving big rigs on U.S. highways. I don't know about you, but this headline does not inspire a whole lot of confidence. It, perhaps it's just me, but I read that headline and I think, can we make sure that there are absolutely no glitches whatsoever with self-driving cars before we transition to self-driving big rigs? From San Francisco, picture an 18-wheel truck barreling down the highway with 80,000 pounds of cargo and no one but a robot at the wheel. To many, that might seem a frightening idea, even at a time when a few dozen of Google's driverless cars are cruising city streets in California, Texas, Washington, and Arizona. But Anthony Lewandowski, a robot-loving engineer who helps steer Google's self-driving technology, is convinced autonomous big rigs will be the next big thing on the road to a safer transportation system. Lewandowski left Google earlier this year to pursue his vision at Otto, a San Francisco startup that he co-founded with two other former Google employees and and a robotics expert. Otto is aiming to equip equip trucks with software sensors, lasers, and cameras so they eventually will be able to navigate the more than 220,000 miles of U.S. highways on their own while a human driver naps in the back of the cab or handles other tasks. For now, the robot truckers would only take control on the highways, leaving humans to handle the tougher task of, of winding through city streets. The idea is similar to the automated pilots that fly jets at high altitudes while leaving the takeoffs and landings to humans. Our goal is to make trucks drive as humanly as possible, but with the reliability of machines, Lewandowski says. Our goal is to make trucks drive as humanly as possible with the reliability of machines. Okay, so first of all, not all human drivers are fantastic, and secondly, not all machines are reliable, and so we mesh those two together, and voila, this is the next great driving phenomenon, is that we have 18-wheelers trucking down the road with a robot in the front seat. I wonder if this is how people, like when the Model T came out, or when the first horseless carriages came out, all the old people were like, no way that's going to work. We don't like that. That is dangerous, pal. You're going 10 miles per hour. Someone is going to die. Would that be the equivalent of me right now being like, I don't really like the idea of a robot driving an 18-wheeler down the highway? Kind of the same? Maybe. Maybe not. What do you think? You can let me know on Twitter. I am at the Friddle. Thank you for tuning in today. It has been great to have you here. Thanks also to those of you listening at the 405. This is 101.1 FM KVXL Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us, radio at experienceliberty.com, or call us at 702-647-4522. We are streaming online all day, every day at kvxl101.com and... There is a podcast edition of my show. If you're not able to catch it live here on KVXL, you can get it there. Uh, it's on SoundCloud. You can go to soundcloud.com slash the Frittle Show, and it will soon be available on iTunes as well. So thanks again for tuning in. It's great to have you here. Hope you have a fantastic day. We're going to go out with Mark Schultz, Cloud of Witnesses, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.